You're listening to the Makers and Mystics podcast. This is your host, Stephen Roach. This is season four, episode two, The Space Between. In this episode, I'm going to introduce you to Eric Loxmo, the owner of Aspiration Studios, which is a Nashville-based company that produces, markets, and distributes film and media entertainment. Eric is an executive producer of the 2015 New York Times critics pick film, Last Days in the Desert, starring Ewan McGregor. Before starting his company, Eric served for 12 years in Washington, D.C. as a campaign strategist, cabinet-level speechwriter, and Capitol Hill press secretary. He is the author of three books, including his most recent, Different Drummer, Bold Thinking for the Rebellious Creative. I had a chance to sit down with Eric and we discussed the ideas in his book and what he calls a third space initiative, which is essentially a middle ground between our faith communities and the general market. And many artists, myself included, find ourselves working and existing in this tension between the two realms of faith and the marketplace. And this space between is an important space to understand. It's not one that leads to an abandonment of conviction, but rather it postures the artist in such a way that we can express the deeper truths of our spiritual lives in a way that invites conversation rather than imposes our ideas on others. I found Eric's perspective on this subject to be forward-thinking and helpful in gaining a greater understanding of what it means to be an artist working in the world. Later on in the episode, we'll be giving you the details on how you can get a free copy of Eric's book, so be sure to listen to the end for those details. Also, for the patrons of the podcast, we'll be posting an additional interview with Eric on marketing and entrepreneurship, which will be at patreon.com slash makersandmystics. And if you'd like to become a supporter of the podcast and join our creative collective, you can do so at that same link, patreon.com slash makersandmystics. We'll put this link as well as links to Eric's website in the show notes of this episode. This is my conversation with Eric Loxmo on The Space Between. Eric, thank you so much for joining us on Makers and Mystics. I'm really excited to have you on the show. Thank you, Stephen. Good to be with you guys. You have such a diverse background. I'm really excited to talk to you. I can't keep a job. <laughs> yeah, well, that's a podcast episode in itself. <laughs> yes. Well, as being a four on the Enneagram, I, uh, I feel like it's all makes sense to me, but other people get confused about what I do and where I go and why I move so much. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you're in good company. I'm a four as well. But why don't you tell the audience a little bit about what you do and, and kind of your background and where you've come from? Yeah, I started my, my ambitions around politics. And I, I think mostly it was because I believed that ideas, and in this case, writing could shape hearts and minds. And I, I love the idea of abilities to create momentum around things that matter. And mm-hmm. politics became a place where that was one exciting part of it. It was, it was tangible, it was measurable. You literally could see if you won on election day or over a piece of legislation. And I started my career uh, for 12 years, I was in politics as a writer, speech writer, and a press secretary. And press secretary, you're, they talk about you being an inch deep and a mile wide. 
you know, policy people are very deep, very knowledgeable about issues. Press secretaries tend to know a little about a lot, and that fits who I am. And I, I love that I'm curious about new ideas. I'm curious about learning about different ways of seeing the world. But still in politics, uh, although I came to fight the culture wars, I quickly realized that was not what God intended for me. Uh, I began to see through friendships and through just experience, the complexity of issues, the, the real calling for a believer in politics, mm-hmm. which was not to fight, but more to uh, just demonstrate common grace and find common good. And that, um, through a lot of relationships and just fascinating people on Capitol Hill around D.C., began to see in me a sense that the creative was really being the driving force of what I wanted to pursue, which was really that I was a creative person stuck in a very bureaucratic system of government, feeling frustrated that while we could do everything right on a piece of legislation or a speech, there was something else happening in the culture that was Mm -hmm. shaping hearts and minds. And of course, we all know now, I think more and more people know that really way upstream from politics is the artist, Mm. is the creative, is the maker. And uh, that got me set in a whole different direction, not to not to go into all the details, but that really set in motion for me a passion to be an advocate for the underdog and be mm-hmm. an advocate for the artist. Well, alongside of your work in the film industry and in the political realm, you've also written a book titled Different Drummer, Bold Thinking for the Rebellious Creative. And one of the things you talk about is the tendency for artists and particularly for filmmakers with a faith background to leave no room for mystery or interpretation in their work. And you mentioned how the audience is often told what to feel, what to think, and what to believe. And so there's often little room left for conversation or further discussion. I'd love it if you could tell us more about the ideas in this book and explain why you feel it's important to leave room for an audience to draw their own conclusions within art and in film. Yeah, I, I wrote this book about a year and a half ago, and I, I call it a two-subway ride read because I know for myself and a lot of us who are creatives, we don't have time to read a whole book, and, it's, and, and oftentimes books are... They're just trying to fill pages or not trying to consolidate ideas. I wanted someone to be able to pick this book up and literally open up the middle of it and have one idea they take away where they're having to read the whole book. So it's a, it's very digestible. It's a short book, lots of ideas. And I'm not trying to give all the answers. I, I really try to raise questions mm-hmm. and uh, have people think differently, especially those who feel like they're lost in the middle. And much of the book and not even that line is about, this tension that that many of us live in, which is we're not at home in the faith world. We're not at home in the general market in entertainment and arts. We're finding ourselves in this weird middle. And it's fa- in fact growing significantly. We, we meet more and more people. We're seeing more success with this middle space artist and audience um, more and more. And really for me, it's um, it, it comes back to a view of common grace. Mm-hmm. Um, and that idea, just to clarify for me, would, would be that wherever there's good, true, and beautiful things, that's where we should be, and that's where we should be uh, advocating for, promoting, producing. 
uh, it's really not my job in my theology to give people all the answers. Mm-hmm. If I'm called to give an answer and account, I certainly would. But in the arts, to me, we have this 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 tension between, okay, is, is a movie, in our case, is a movie designed to give the audience a sense of confirmation in their beliefs? Mm-hmm. Is it meant to affirm them to a point where when they leave, everything has been said that can be said, and there's no ambiguity? You know exactly what you should believe. Is that the right approach, or is art... And I'm obviously flavoring my response, but great art to me leaves lots of margins where you you don't know what you feel, you don't know what to think, but you've been presented with something that could be so profoundly beautiful or or just uh, even just so true or uh, maybe more descriptive of the human condition that you have to wrestle through that on your own or with others, ideally within a, a community. I think the moment we begin to say that that art has to give all the answers. I think you're entering into the story or into the work already knowing your outcome and Flannery O'Connor, Mellon Langle. There's so many examples of those that were writing stories and did not know the direction it was going to take. They were surprised. I think Mellon Langle, uh, actually made a planner. He talked about how characters would show up in her story. <laughs> she had no idea. Like, who is this? <laughs> I'm gonna write about this 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 person now just showed up in my story, and that's um, you know this is where the church in particular has been struggling with. You have a captive audience; don't miss that opportunity to give them the message. And I just I just believe um, that both can be dangerous, and it also just really hurts mm-hmm. the artist, and and it makes it utilitarian. It's you're a useful artist because you've done something that is communicating a message. Um, and there's a you know the great line from Hollywood: if you want to send a message, call Western Union, send a telegram. In art, you have to create a, the environment, the space that allows people to dialogue, to wrestle, to have that internal conversation. And hopefully, in our best scenario, when the credits are rolling, they're haunted by things that they can't explain, and then takes two days to unpack. When we did Tree of Life or and talk about a movie like Calvary or our movie uh, Last Days in the Desert. Most of the time, people are coming back to this the screen again to see more layers to understand and unpack it. And that's that's it. to me. Uh, recently, I've been thinking about um, most of our movies that we work on. You have to see again. If mm-hmm. if a movie is just seen once, you're like, well, great, that was entertaining. And there's a role for that. I'm not saying that you don't have you know, great entertainment that just doesn't escape. But most of the movies you're seeing in the faith world, you see once and you never have to see them again because they're not really giving you something to wrestle with. Right. And I think that's the difference between, you know, three-dimensional art and then something that's just flat or cardboard. And I love what you said that uh, you would hope that when the credits are rolling, that the audience is still haunted by things that they can't explain, that they actually have to take back and wrestle through. And I think, at least for me personally, that tends to be a hallmark of what makes great or compelling art, you know? And you mentioned also earlier uh, the middle space, you know, this place that exists between the faith arena and the marketplace where 
we do grapple with these larger ideas and the deeper mysteries of life, but at the same time, we're not trying to impose a particular belief on the audience so much as we are creating a space to have the conversation. Can you talk a little bit more about that third space and what it means to you? Oh, just the, it's the most difficult space. I think that's where it's so hard for the artist. We're, we are told that, um, and we're shown, you can make money doing faith content, explicit content. You can make money in general market. But if you're in the middle, it is, it is that most difficult space. Mm-hmm. Not only because, uh, you know, as a marketer, you're told you have to find your audience and you have to know your audience and you have to be very clear and deliver them to an outcome of sales. And the middle is, there's not a national association of middle space people. Like there's not this mm-hmm. one place you'd go there. It's a mosaic and everything's very high touch and relational and trying to market great work into that is difficult. It's oftentimes a discovery more than is a promotion. You're trying to pull people in, not push and hype content. It's helpful for us. We've seen these five categories within belief-centric films and TV shows and even books and music. You have this conversion, in our case, I'll use film, conversion films. You have confirmation films uh, where the audience is coming in. It's really bumper sticker movies. God's not dead. I can imagine. I mean, they're very explicit in their titling. And when you go, you're, you're more or less saying, look how many people are here. We went, we're winning. And that's the point is you're confirming your faith. Then you get into the commercialization of, of belief in film where more and more that is not going to be the, the future. That was the Ben Hur approach. Let's go so big with a story that everyone feels that they have to have an opinion about it. So you have people who hate it and love it, but it's so big and not, not really matching where audiences are. And then the last two we think are the future. And you've seen this over and over again is the causation around belief. So you look at a Selma or a, even a wonder or these, these movies that certainly resonate with a community of people who are deeply gospel centered Mm -hmm. or have a faith um, driven perspective, but it's widely more driven around human aspirations, triumph, bigger themes. And then not to drone on here and on and on, but the last one is that conversation around belief. That is very difficult to, um, those tend to be smaller art house and the dollars aren't there yet in a significant way, but they are, they're the ones that Terrence Malick makes. They're the ones that people tend to look back and think, well, those are the films that I love. Well, even, uh, you know, I, I watched the film that you did the last days in the desert and I loved it. I loved it because of the ambiguity that was there, but also because of the humanity in the way that the story was told. And I thought it was really fascinating to portray Jesus in such a human light. And there wasn't even, I don't think there was a, a line of scripture in the, in the entire film. Is that right? No, there was no scripture. Yeah, but you're right. I did leave the film saying, I need to watch this again. You know, and my buddies and I that watched it with me, we just sat around and, and it really provoked conversation. And because of that, I love the approach that, that you guys are doing with this third space that, yeah, that you called yeah, it. I appreciate that. And yeah, Ewan McGregor plays Satan and uh, Jesus uh, in that story. And, so, and it's a imagined part of the 40 days of Christ in the wilderness. What's fascinating about those artists who are creating for the middle 
is that there's actually more room to be faithful. And this is where I think the, the artist who is coming from a gospel-centered view, uh, you, if you are marinating in the scriptures and you are in communion with God, you actually can't help but create things that are going to just spill over into what's true and faithful and, and good and beautiful. I mean, certainly we're bent and broken, but I think that if you're going to be in the middle, you need to spend a lot of time in solitude and prayer and let the Spirit work with you. Because really today, we don't need more, and I want to be careful saying this, because I'm not a either-or kind of guy. I'm just both and, but I think we need a lot more of the middle. And it's where people are going and where even the faith audience is looking left and right to see who's got something that's more substantive and more dimensional and layered and textured and more honest to what's really true in life. Mm-hmm. So there's this shift coming from the faith world and younger audiences in particular. And there's also this attraction by the general market to say, okay, well, I can only go to so many superhero movies. I need to see something that moves me. Yeah. I want to feel alive again. And that's where even with Rodrigo Garcia, the director of last days, his favorite conversations and he told me this. I don't think he he minds having me repeat this. His most favorite conversations were with people who were coming from the Christian perspective because they were saying things and seeing things in the movie that he didn't even know he did. And that's where I <laughs> love it. I, it happened in the Tree of Life all the time. We would have these big uh, screenings, and there would be so many conversations that would cause both cast and crew to think, I didn't even see that. Mm-hmm. I didn't know it was happening. It's on the script. So that's beautiful. Like that's to me is when when the director feels like they've found something that is eternal. you talk about the difference between what you call prescriptive truth and what you referred to as descriptive truth. And you said that prescriptive truth is more of an artist trying to explain how to fix the world through their art, whereas descriptive truth is more of simply showing the world as it is and then allowing the audience to draw their own conclusions. Can you talk a little more about how a descriptive truth differs from a prescriptive truth? Well, it it is an honest assessment and not a glossy assessment of the world. And we're actually at a pre-Christian moment. Mm -hmm. And if you think you're in a post-Christian moment, you certainly want to try to fix things and your posture is very different. You're on the defensive, you're fighting. I actually think we're in a pre-Christian world, so we're now back to square one where we say, okay, well, all, all things are off the table. If you had a chance to start all over again with telling the story, this transcendent, timeless story, what would you do? Well, I mean, you kind of go back to what Jesus did. You tell stories, ask questions. And that's where people are. And there's so, I mean, look at the stories every day. There's a story of people saying, literally, there's a void inside me. 
there's something missing. And for us not to, to say yes, and let's tell stories about that and what that search looks like. This is the difference between, and I've been wrestling with this idea and thinking this through, it's just the second act, that middle, and in fact, I call it a Saturday artist. If you look at the Easter story, we tend to think we have a, we have a lot of Sunday resurrection stories in our, in our films, in our shows, in our work, that things have been solved and fixed. And that is obviously an essential part and a glorious part of the story, the most glorious moment in, in human history. And we have those that are the Friday artists who are very good at describing the broken, bent, dark side of, of the world and its past and its future. And that's also an essential part, the most, the most uh, horrific moment in history. But there is this moment where Jesus leaves the cross and before the empty tomb, he spends a day in the middle. Mm-hmm. And the Apostles' Creed talks about he descended into hell. And there's lots of variations about Holy Saturday. But to me, that's a very important day. Mm-hmm. That is exactly where I think we have to live, which is I know my condition. I know the hope in front of me. But I'm sitting here knowing that it's, it's still not complete. Mm-hmm. I don't have all the answers. But I know something is, has happened and something will happen so I really like the idea of Holy Saturday being the model for where artists and audiences can be. Mm-hmm. We just got to prove it. it. The audience is there. This is where everyone says, oh, there's no audience or no audience. Well, you can't, you, know, you can't prove it on box office. I actually think the audience is there. I just think that we've been with faith-based movies. We are training the audience to believe that is art. Mm-hmm. That is what we need and what we want. And actually Hollywood's trained to say, well, that's what people of faith want. And until we show that that's not what we want, or we want something more, we're always going to get the same old fare. And that's mm-hmm. just not, not our calling at all in our company. Well, I know the most recent film that you've worked on is a film about the life of Mr. Rogers. And I at least wanted to give mention to that. The film just came out this month. Can you tell the listeners a little bit about what they could expect from this film? It's one of those moments that, as we've shown this movie to a variety of audiences, that this is a doc. So you're talking about a, it's already a difficult challenge when you talk about documentaries Mm -hmm. and people's assumptions about them. But it is astounding what happens when people watch this movie. And it comes, it's everything from a, a joy to a, Tyranness to ugly cries as people walk out. They cannot speak. And some may think, my wife asked me, like, why are people so emotional? And, and you know, it's like Mr. Rogers, you know, it's, won't you be my neighbor? It's, it's, it's children's entertainment. And it's not even, as they talk about in the film, it's not like it's high production entertainment. It's really, really basic. But you realize it's not nostalgia. It's not people my age and your age who are thinking, oh, I remember this. Mm-hmm. It's not at all. It's actually this feeling of, we had something so special in him and we took it for granted. And now we're seeing the exact opposite in our society, that mm-hmm. kindness is in crisis. So this, this, um, the, and I'm not going to give it away. The end of the film is, it literally leaves you just speechless into the point where you don't know why you're emotional, but you are. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful story and it's something that we've seen a, 
in different moments in our history as a company where the film and Morgan Neville is unbelievable filmmaker. So it's, it's the craft of it, but it's the subject as well where the film and the story take over and the audience is swept up with something that they can't really explain again. It just, it happens on occasion and you see that and it's so special that you realize why you're in this business is just because the sound, the images, the environment, the music, the themes all work in a way that you can't explain it in a physical sense, a material sense. Well, at the beginning of the show, we promised our listeners the opportunity to get a free copy of your book, A Different Drummer. And it's it's pretty simple. All you have to do is go to iTunes and leave us a review for the Makers and Mystics podcast, and then send us an email with the quote of your review to info at makersandmystics.com. And be sure that you include your name and your mailing address, and we'll send you a copy of Eric's book. Simple as that. Go to iTunes, leave us a review, and email us at info at makersandmystics.com with your name, address, and a copy of the review. And we'll send you a copy of Eric's book, A Different Drummer. Well, Eric, before we go, I would love to read one more passage from your book, which I feel embodies the heart of all we've been discussing in this conversation. And if you can't tell, I really like the book. <laughs> you know, <laughs> well, and at least I, one person read it. Yeah, that's right. I love it. Well, this section of your book is called The Painter of Shadows. Here's the quote. A painter uses both light and shadows in her work. Preacher Billy Graham said, Profoundly true. If a painter did not use shadows, the page would be a line drawing with no depth or texture. The light doesn't stand out as much. Many creatives, especially in Hollywood, have let their eyes adjust too much to the darkness. They are used to the dark and see no reason to lighten the room. Others have overexposed the art. Think about photographers in a dark room. They are in the dark room because too much light would blanch the image. Too much light ruins it. Is it possible to have too much light? As broken people, we are prone to overexpose, to rush people headlong into change, to find their road to Damascus experience, to create a big neon arrow sign just in case anyone misses it. Yes, we can absolutely flood art with too much light. And as a result, it disregards and distrusts the audience. Well, Eric, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me on Makers and Mystics. I really enjoy the work you're doing, and I really appreciate you coming on the show. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, Steven, it's um appreciate what you're doing, and um, you know, love to spend more time together. Yeah, for sure. Let's make it happen. So here we go, like mist and water that's here and gone. 
Thanks so much for listening to the Makers and Mystics podcast. Music for this episode is provided by the Grey Havens, Siddhartha, and All the Bright Lights. You can find links to these artists in the show notes of this episode. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week. Change at the moment when the trumpets blow. 